Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Tonight's reading can be found on page 918 and is taken from Amos chapter 3, starting at verse 9 and going to the end of chapter 4. So that's page 918. Proclaim to the fortresses of Ashad and to the fortresses of Egypt. Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria. See the great unrest within her and the oppression among her people. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, who hoard, plunder, and loot in their fortresses. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. An enemy will overrun the land. He will pull down your strongholds and plunder your fortresses. This is what the Lord says. As a shepherd saves from the lion's mouth only two leg bones or a piece of an ear, so will the Israelites be saved. Those who sit in Samaria, on the edge of their beds, and in Damascus, on their couches. Hear this and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord, the Lord God Almighty. On the day I punish Israel for her sins, I will destroy the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. I will tear down the winter house along with the summer house. The houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed and the mansions will be demolished, declares the Lord. Hear this word, you cows of Basham on Mount Samaria. You women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. The sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness, the time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. You will each go straight out through the breaks in the wall, and you will be cast out towards Harmon, declares the Lord. Go to Bethel and sin, go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three three years. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do, declares the sovereign Lord. I gave you empty stomachs in every city and lack of bread in every town, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld rain from you. When the harvest was still three months away, I sent rain on one town, but withheld it from another. One field had rain, another had none and dried up. People stagger from town to town for water, but did not get enough to drink. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Many times I struck your gardens and vineyards, I struck them with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured your fig and olive trees, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent plagues among you as I did to Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword, along with your captured horses. I filled your nostrils with the stench of your camps, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were like a burning stick snatched from the fire, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, 
This is what I will do to you, Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. He who forms the mountains, creates the wind, and reveals his thoughts to man. He who turns dawn to darkness and treads the high places of the earth. The Lord God Almighty is his name. It will be a great help uh, to you and to me if you have your Bibles open at our reading from Amos chapter 3 and 4, page 918 in the Church Bibles if you've just closed them. And let's pray for God's help as we look at his word together. Behold our God seated on his throne. Father, we know that one day we will indeed behold you seated on your throne. And we thank you that your word has been given to us to make us wise about that moment, to make us prepared to be people who can bow down and worship you. And so, Father, please, as we come to this difficult passage, we cry out for your help again, help for our hearts to understand your word, and then to go and live in light of it. And we pray this for your glory. Amen. I don't know if you ever watched that TV program, A Place in the Sun. Uh, It's the kind of program that Lord and I sometimes watch in the middle of deepest, darkest winter when we're fed up with being cold and when we're craving some sunshine. And so we flick on the TV and we escape to this wonderful, warm place. I'm sure you are much more godly and cope with the cold and much better ways than that. You've had lots of practice, I gather, um, up here in Sheffield. Um, But anyway, if you have watched the program, you know how it works. It's a very simple formula. Um, The show finds two Brits looking for the good life abroad, and they're flown out to somewhere warm and glamorous, a a place in the sun. And they're shown around to some local accommodation, to some houses. They go to the local village and look around. They see the local sites. They sample the local culture, and they have some local food. And the whole program is building up to the final question. Will they or won't they? And the way that it's all set up, you're you're kind of, you're there on your sofa going, ooh, I would love to go there if I could. I'd love to be there. And you're saying, go on, go go to the place in the sun. Uh, That's how the program works. Um, Tonight, our passage before us, in a sense, is is a very early version of a place in the sun. Uh, We have all the usual ingredients. Uh, We have two candidates, uh, two people who are invited to go to a new place to check it out. And we have our destination. It's all there for us in verse 9. Amos says this, Proclaim to the fortresses of Ashdod and to the fortresses of Egypt, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria. Sounds promising. But before we settle back on our sofas to watch the show hosted by our tour guide, Amos, there are one or two surprising details about this particular episode. These tourists are a rather odd choice. Ashdod, the Philistine capital, and Egypt. Not cash-laden Brits looking for a better life, but rather two nations renowned for their cruelty and hostility. I'm thinking more Boko Haram and ISIS. 
And what about the destination? Samaria, we're told, verse 9, the capital of Israel. Well, Amos hasn't quite got his sales pattern right, has he? End of verse 9. He says, see the great unrest within her and the oppression among her people. It's an odd way to start a tour of a place in the sun. And what we have tonight will be a tour. Amos will take us around this city with his two guests and he will show them different aspects of the city. The camera turns from place to place to place. But what we discover is that this is no place in the sun, but rather a place on the edge. A place on the edge of destruction. Amos has begun his prophecy with a lion roaring back in 1 verse 2. He ends his introduction, uh, 3 verse 8, with a lion roaring. It's a lion roaring not so much against the world, but against his people. And after that introduction, he now turns his focus to the details of what is going on within God's people. And so the camera will move from place to place around this country as the two visitors watch what's happening. What are God's people up to? Well, the way he shows us is devastating. He takes two of the cruelest people you could think of and he says, come and look what, come and look at what God's people are up to. Come and look at the city. Come and have a, have a walk around the streets. Get a feel for it. And at the end, I'll say, do you, do you want to come and live here? Do you want to come and be a part of this people? And the devastating answer has to be no. These two witnesses would not want to come and be amongst this people The point of this guided tour is not to help Ashdod or Egypt. It is to help Israel, to show her and to show us how far it is possible to slip as God's people. And as the camera moves around gathering evidence, it's all building up to one horrific climax. It's there in verse 11 of chapter 4. Look with me. Sorry, verse 12. Therefore, this is what I will do to you, Israel. And because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. That's where this tour is going. It is to to warn the people that there is an encounter coming, an encounter with the living God. Prepare to meet your God, says Amos. Israel is a place on the edge, on the edge of destruction, on the edge of meeting God. And tonight is a reminder that we will also one day meet God. The question isn't will we, but the question is how will we meet God? Under what circumstances will we be ready on that day to meet him? And this guided tour from Amos is here to help us to understand the pitfalls of being part of God's people and to help us to be ready to meet God when our time comes. So on with the tour. First of all, we see a prosperous city. 
And Samaria is prosperous. She is enjoying a, a wonderful spell of, I guess, unparalleled prosperity. Look at what Amos sees as he walks around. Verse 10, there are fortresses full of plunder and loot. Verse 15, there are winter houses and summer houses. There are houses adorned with ivory and there are mansions. In other words, a prosperous city. Enough money for that second home down by the seaside. Enough money to fund the loft conversion, to fit out the house just as we wanted it. This isn't subsistence living. This wasn't survival living. This was the good life, at least for some in Samaria. And note there's nothing wrong here with having money, with having these kinds of resources. No, the issue for the prophet is much more subtle than that. Verse 10. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, who hoard and plunder, who hoard plunder and loot in their fortresses. You see, the issue here is that the wealth that the, Samaritan, the Samarians had had come through plunder, had come through force. They had looted other people. They had gained their wealth at the expense of others. Instead of being a blessing to the nations, they had become a curse to the nations. I remember a few years ago hearing some feedback from some non-Christians as they were talking about one of their colleagues. And they were shocked to discover that this particular colleague was a Christian. They were shocked because this colleague was known in the office for being the most cutthroat, the most brutal, the most hard-nosed lawyer in the office. And the non-Christians watching on were shocked. Israel was materially successful, but morally bankrupt. As Amos says, she did not know how to do right. And so in this physically impressive city that was at last prospering, Amos gives the most shocking warning. Verse 12, as a shepherd saves from the lion's mouth only two leg bones or a piece of an ear. So the Israelites will be saved. Those who sit in Samaria on the edge of their beds and in Damascus on their couches. The fine beds, the luxury fabrics. These things mean nothing to God. In the final analysis, what's he was looking for was a people who do right, who care for the oppressed, who care for those who can't care for themselves, who do not pursue wealth at other people's expenses, but use their wealth to bless other people. In the end, the beds and fabrics will be the kinds of items archaeologists find as they pick through the piles of earth. Scraps, echoes of a past glory. A prosperous city. The camera moves on. And next we see a pampered home. You can just imagine the scene as Amos continues his tour around the city. It's, it's a coffee morning this time. And the local ladies have gathered for their cups of tea and they're showing a biscuit and they're catching up and chatting. And then the guest speaker is announced. He's come all the way from Tekoa, they're told. Amos. But imagine the shock as he begins. Chapter 4, verse 1. 
Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. That would have got their attention, wouldn't it? With their cup of tea. Look, Amos isn't being crude. Uh, He's not using language how we would use language today. But he is being cutting in his sarcasm. You see, Bashan was an area known for being fertile and being lush. Um, The combination of rain and sunlight meant that the grass was beautiful. And the cattle from Bashan were the, the most prosperous, the most pampered, the most spoiled cattle in the land. The, the Aberdeen Angus of the 7th century BC. And so to refer to the cattle of Bashan is to refer to, to people who, who are pampered and prosperous. You have it made. You have all the raw ingredients in life that they need to have a, have a good life, a comfortable life, a lush life. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy. In other words, hear this word, you women who are pampered, who have it made, who are used to luxury and finery, who sit around, I guess, gossiping and backstabbing, who ignore the poor and the needy, Amos is not being uh, some male chauvinist here. He's not demeaning these women. In fact, it's because of their power and place in society that he has such strong words for them. They are those who recline back on their sofas, verse 1, and and say to their husbands, bring us some drinks. With the World Cup on, I suspect the opposite is happening in homes across the city, but there's no doubt in Amos' day, who wore the trousers in the Sumerian households. These women held power. They were skillful at getting their way. They could manipulate others. They could control. Is Amos wide of the mark here? I don't think so. He'll have lots to say to men in just a moment. Don't worry, they won't be left out. But he has a particular word to women here. In middle-class, prosperous society, a woman can easily occupy this place of power and control. I'm looking at no one here in particular. (laughs) But they can manipulate. They can get their own way. And it can be through self-centered, self-serving. And it is a form of oppression against those who cannot stand for themselves. Hear this word, says Amos, verse 2. The sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness, the time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. The picture is of this bovine gathering being herded out, verse 3, through great holes in the walls. The ones who used to be pampered are now poked and prodded with sticks as they are driven from their place of luxury and pampering into a a difficult and dark world beyond the fallen city. A prosperous city, a pampered home, the camera moves on, a packed temple. There has been much discussion in the news in recent years about the decline of the church about how church numbers are dropping throughout this nation. But that was not the case in Amos' day. 
The place of worship, the religious centers, they were humming, they were thriving, they were bustling. At verse 4, sacrifices were being offered every day, tithes every three years, or perhaps better according to the footnote, every three days. Burnt offerings, free will offerings everywhere, a packed temple. As Amos takes his tour around, you can almost imagine the smells that you would experience walking around by the temple. Sacrifices burning. The queues of people queuing up to bring their sacrifices to the temple. It was an impressive sight. A packed, bustling temple. But with cutting sarcasm, Amos exposes the people. Chapter 4, verse 4. Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. In other words, go to your temples at Bethel and Gilgal, the places you think are the places of worship. Go there and sin. Why? Because the reason why the people were going to these temples was because they were going to show off. They were going to brag. The temple had become the platform for God's people to impress one another. Do you see what the people loved? Not the Lord, but the opportunity to boast about their religious performances. And this is so easy for us to do, isn't it? To think less about loving the Lord and think more about how other people view us. To be more excited about the praise of other people for our behavior, for our attendance, for what we're doing than about how we're loving the Lord. And such was the people's plight that their place of worship had become a place of sin. A prosperous city, a pampered home, a packed temple, finally, the camera zooms, to a painful past. It's the last stop in our city tour. It's, in fact, the archives, the city archives, Amos takes us back in history to a previous time and he he reminds the people of what has happened to them in the past. Uh, Verse 6, there have been empty stomachs. Verse 7, the crops have failed. Verse 8, there has been extreme thirst. Verse 9, there's been blight and mildew. Verse 10, plagues, bloodshed, plight. In other words, there has been a painful past for these people. A past the people would have remembered And you could almost sense the relief in the air that that past was behind them now. That at last they were in a prosperous city with a summer house and a winter house. But here is the shock for the people as Amos rifles through the archives. This painful past was not the result of a random world gone out of control, Uh, it wasn't bad luck. It wasn't down to primarily bad people doing bad things in a bad way. It was because the Lord caused it. Do you see? I gave you empty stomachs. I withheld the rains. I struck your gardens. I sent plagues. I killed. It was me says the Lord. 
And of course, this raises huge questions about suffering, about God's role in suffering. And I wouldn't pretend to stand here tonight with anything like all the answers neatly tidied away when it comes to these huge questions. But I want, to notice, I want you to notice two very important details about tonight to help us understand what Amos is saying. Uh, the first detail is this. Suffering is not distributed evenly. It is not distributed evenly. Look at verse 7. I also withheld rain from you when the harvest was still three months away. And then notice, I sent rain on one town, but withheld it from another. One field had rain, another had none, and dried up. Do you see? The suffering, it wasn't even. One place had lots of rain. One place was fine. The next place had no rain, and it was not fine. And this is how suffering hits us, isn't it? So often, suffering just does not feel even. Some people seem to sail through life as if life was dreadfully easy, that things just fall into place, that they try something and it works, they try the next thing and it works, and on and on, and life is just easy. And for other people, they get clobbered time after time. I think of one family close to us uh, who have just been through it over the last few years. We've watched on almost just in agony, watching them go through it. There's been cancer there's been operation after operation. There's been difficulty with the children. And just when things are at the worst, uh, the car breaks down. Or they have one chance to go away on holiday. And on that holiday, when they're craving rest, they get food poisoning. And you, 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 you watch on in agony for them, thinking, what is God doing? How is it so uneven? And there will be some here tonight who are being clobbered, for whom suffering just feels dreadfully uneven. Amos knows this. And I think when we realize that suffering is so rarely even, I think it helps us to guard against trying to overread suffering, to try to find out cause and effect in every case. Now, the Bible rarely encourages us to try to find a particular reason for a particular form of suffering. Uh, John 9, why was that man born blind? His sin or his parents? Neither says Jesus. Luke 13, why did that tower in Siloam fall on those people? Because of a particular guilt? No, says Jesus. The unevenness of suffering is not meant to drive us to search for a particular cause, but rather it reminds us of a general problem. Why did one field get rain and another didn't? I don't know. I guess we cannot know this side of glory. But it wasn't because one farmer was better than another farmer. It was rather because a whole people were walking away from the Lord. It's almost as if the wretched unpredictability and unevenness of the suffering in and of itself is meant to tell us just how serious things are. That's the first detail as we think about this painful past. The second detail is this. Suffering has a purpose. 
the reality is that these people are rushing headlong on a course of disaster. The Lord has sent these sufferings to wake up the people to their plight and to turn them around. Five times the Lord cries out. Uh, For example, verse 6. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Again, the same cry, verse 8. Again, verse 9. Again, verse 10. Again, verse 11. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Imagine driving along the motorway. I know some of you can't imagine this firsthand, but imagine driving along the motorway and and you see one of those signs um, flashing across the road, you know, warning, incident ahead, be careful. And as you drive along the next morning, be careful, turn off the road, incident ahead, and you, you keep driving. And then the speed limit drops 70 to 60 to 50 to 40 to 30. These signs warning you something's on the road ahead, something bad, beware. And if you're sensible and wise, you slow down, you turn around, you turn off, you avoid the disaster. But the Israelites were hurtling down the road, ignoring sign after sign after sign. And one day, it'll be too late. And this warning comes, you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Please, would you return to me? And these sufferings, this painful past, are the road signs reminding us all is not well, crying out to us to turn around. And so in our sufferings, in the unevenness of our sufferings, we are meant to follow the cry of the prophet, to turn around, to turn to the Lord, to turn to the one person who can do something about our suffering, the one person who has Look at verse 13, forms the mountains and who creates the winds. The one who has enough power, enough authority to do something about a broken world. The one person who says that there will be a new creation where there is no pain and no tears because I am strong enough to fix the brokenness of this world. Turn to him before it is too late, says Amos. And with that, the tour of the city is finished. Israel is a place on the edge, on the edge of destruction. And so as we finish, how should we respond to this guided tour? Well, we will all meet God. That is not in doubt. The question for us is, how will we meet God There is the Amos way, the way of ignoring repeated warnings, of spending a lifetime rushing away from God, which eventually will lead to a meeting with God, but it will be a destructive meeting. But of course, there is another way to meet God. Remember in Luke 5, that encounter between a group of fishermen and the carpenter from Nazareth. They had been fishing all night in the Sea of Galilee, and they caught nothing. And this carpenter says, go out again. And the fishermen are thinking, really? But they go, and their boat almost sank because of the number of fish they caught. And so do you remember how Simon Peter responds as he returns to shore? Great, I've just made a load of money. No. 
Verse 8, he says, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Why did he say this? Because at that moment he realized that what he was best at, which was fishing, was so pathetically far below the power of this carpenter from Nazareth. And he realized in an instant that this carpenter was not just a carpenter. He was the one who had power over the mountains and the winds, over creation. And he did the only right thing. He realized where the right place was. He fell down on his knees before this man. I am a sinful man. Do you remember the response from Jesus? I love this response. Don't be afraid. That is the right way to meet God. It is a way which means that we recognize that our greatest strengths, the things that we are best at, are nothing compared to the power of God. We bring nothing, even the best things we have are nothing compared to the creator. It is a place where we bow down saying we are nothing, we are sinful, please have mercy. And it is a place where we find mercy and forgiveness. There will be some here tonight who should be afraid. We have become far too comfortable, far too complacent, far too wrapped up in our careers and in our homes and in our personal progress. We are flying by all the warning signs in our lives. We don't see them. We are like the people of Samaria who think that their worst times are behind them, who think that because of their skill and uh, creativity and abilities, they are able to create a comfortable, good life for themselves. But you see, there will come a day when our greatest strengths will not be enough to save us. Our health will not last. Our pampered luxury will not be enough to numb the pain. Our religious busyness will count for nothing. And it will be a terrible day if that's where we've invested our lives when we meet God. Return to the Lord. There will be others here tonight who are afraid of meeting the Lord. And we need to hear the words of Jesus afresh. Don't be afraid. There is a way of meeting God, which is a way of joy and peace and security. It's the way of Peter recognizing that we bring nothing. We have nothing to offer except our sin, which we place before Jesus. And he is the one who says, do not be afraid. In fact, this is the journey of the Christian, is it not? From fear to forgiveness, from self-reliance to Christ-reliance, from a preoccupation with our own comfort and our own desires to a preoccupation with the desires of our King. Let's pray. Father, this passage is not easy to hear. It contains 
words which we would almost prefer not to have to think about. But Father, we thank you that you love your world. We thank you that you offer us this warning because you love us enough to make us think about how we are preparing to meet you. And so, Father, I pray that as we leave from here tonight, as we mull over this word, as we think about what Amos says, please help us to see where we need to take warning. And, Father, please, maybe once again, find great mercy and great assurance at the foot of the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.